Hello, and welcome to the Big Green Podcast. My name is Britt Wood. I'm the CEO of NALP, and I'm joined today by Andrew Bray, uh, NALP's Vice President of Government Relations. Andrew, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Ah, thanks for having me, Britt. So we're going to talk a little bit about the election right now. Uh, we know it's still uh, not completely over, um, but uh, it does appear, at least at this point, that uh, President-elect Biden uh, has been declared um, the winner. So let me let me start with my first question on that assumption that Biden is, in fact, the winner. How does that impact NALP policy priorities um, and, and, and who is positioned to, uh, you know, to 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 take on key roles in the administration uh, with the jurisdiction over NALP policy priorities? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question, Britt. And, um, you know, we've been saying all along that there were going to be pluses and minuses, opportunities and challenges um, with a Biden presidency um, or for another four years with President Trump. Um, But what I'd like to do is focus kind of on our two two key priority issues, first being H2B and the second being some lawn care related issues. Um, From an H2B perspective, um, we're kind of trying to enter this uh, rather optimistically. Um, The President Trump uh, had released additional visas the last few years, but um, as recently as June, has suspended the program. Um, so there were some ominous signs from uh, President Trump for another four years of the program. Um, President Biden, we're hopeful, um, is going to be willing to work with us on making some cap reforms or would may authorize the discretionary authority if get granted by Congress. Um, <clears throat> I think what you have to understand is that the Democratic Party has a, has a strong constituency with the labor unions, and the labor unions have always been very anti-H2B. And um, I think that in a Biden administration, there's a good chance um, somebody involved with labor um, assumes the position of Secretary of Labor at uh, Department of Labor, and, and that could present some problems. Um, but, but on the other side, we believe at the Department of Homeland Security, they may be tapping somebody like a Mayorkas, who was President Obama's um, head of the DHS, who basically was the architect of DACA. So we view somebody that goes into DHS looking to do other things um, besides focus on H2B, um, such as rolling back some of the things that the Trump administration did. And with that, we think that there's some opportunity to work with the Department of Homeland Security. I would also note that um, President, uh, President-elect President Biden hails from the state of Delaware, which has long time been a state that understands H2B problems. Um, somebody that that is lucky enough to go to Delaware every summer knows that they have serious seasonality employment you know um, issues with regards to the summer for uh, tourism but also they have a huge landscape contingency there and because of that both senators uh, from the state of delaware who are close friends and allies of president biden he called both of them out by name on saturday night during his acceptance speech are two two senators that have been very good to us on h2b and so we're optimistic that, that one or both of them will be involved in the administration there's rumors that senator coons could be tapped ahead the State Department, which also has some jurisdiction over H2B. Um, so I, I can't say it's a slam dunk that, that we're going to be in, in, in a good shape with H2B. But I think the way I, I phrase this talking with some folks is I think at this point, Trump is a known commodity as somebody that has folks in his administration that are hostile um, and, and aggressively against the H2B program. I think at this point, Joe Biden is an unknown commodity, but a known commodity is somebody that's willing to cut deals. So, so we're optimistic there. From a lawn care perspective, I think you're going to see an administration that has a much more aggressive environmental um, agenda. 
And I think therefore there could be some additional regulatory burdens put in place. I think you're hearing names like uh, Governor of uh, Washington, Jay Inslee, um, who, who is a, has a strong environmental record um, to head the EPA. Um, I do think though that the person that's gonna take up that job at EPA is gonna focus more on some, some clean air and maybe other issues, not so much of the magnifying glass on say pesticides or fertilizers. Um, so I do think there'll be challenges at the federal level, but there's an opportunity here too. At state and local level, we've been getting hounded for the last four years that Trump is destroying the environment and dismantling the EPA. So having a Biden administration actually reinforces our argument that FIFRA, the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, Rodenticide Act, and the EPA, um, who is in charge of FIFRA, you know, that's the foundation of what we do. And we can trust the scientists, we can trust the bureaucrats, and we can trust the EPA. So I actually think there's an opportunity there, Brett. Yeah, Andrew, I think that's a really important point. Obviously, uh, you know, with with the way the science has played out at the EPA, um, certainly strengthens our argument. So, um, so you know, I, I guess if I was going to summarize kind of what you talked about there, you know, really, there, I, I kind of sense a little optimism uh, from you. And um, I also kind of sense that, uh, you know, certainly there'll be challenges that lie ahead. But on the whole, uh, we're not in certainly in bad shape as it relates to uh, to some of the priorities for NALP members. So let me let me flip the switch a little bit here and uh, ask you a little bit about the election itself. So, you know, if we're going to look at the electoral map um, and, and really what changed from 2016 to 2020, uh, you know, what what really was the change that's enabled the media outlets to call the race for Biden at this point? Sure. And um, you know what? It's actually really funny. I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but when I was looking the other day, the election's pretty similar to four years ago. And the final vote count of electoral, you know, the electoral map might be right over 300, just like it was four years ago. I think what's really interesting is you're talking, as you're hearing sides, you know, folks from the right saying that the election's razor thin. Well, if you actually go and dig into the numbers, you know, four years ago, Wisconsin was closer than any of the states. Wisconsin and Michigan were closer than almost any of the states on the map this year. Um, you, you wouldn't believe that, but actually Georgia's margin just widened up to where it's actually larger than what Michigan was four years ago. So the difference is, is that those states with razor thin margins, so you're talking Pennsylvania, Wisconsin um, and Michigan, just broke the other way this time. Right. I mean, we're yeah. talking about tens of thousands of votes here. So you can understand why people are upset and looking closely at it. But the reality is, is it just broke the other way this time. And, and we can kind of talk about that later, maybe why. But then you add in the fact that from a Democratic standpoint, they needed to hold that proverbial blue wall of those three states I just said. Well, they somehow broke through in the Sun Belt. And right now that looks like Arizona and Georgia. And, and that's really the big difference. I, I tend to think the difference between the two elections really isn't that much. You're talking about tens of thousands of votes, whereas Hillary Clinton won the popular vote um, by more than a million. It looks like President Biden's, you know, looking to win the popular vote by more than two million. But that's not how we elect our president. But I do think it's just it continues to show this theme of a very divided country. And I think we can expect the next several presidential cycles to come down to a handful of states and tens of thousands of votes. Yeah, that's really interesting. I really wasn't aware that uh, that it was closer in, in Wisconsin and Michigan in 16 than it was even in Georgia this year. That's that's really interesting. But you're right. It's uh, it, it really is does seem like a smaller amount of the population. Now, certainly 10,000 people is a, is a pretty large population, but still uh, these crucial kind of swing states. And, and like you said, a breakthrough in uh, in a traditionally uh, either conservative or, or liberal stronghold really can determine the winner one way or the other. So, um, 
So let's 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 talk about where we stand today, Andrew. Um, you know, what are the next steps for both Biden and Trump to kind of reach a conclusion on this? You know, where, where are we where are we headed? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a great question. And I actually my wife asked me this, I think, yesterday morning. So luckily, I did a little bit of research last night to make sure I kind of understood how <laughs> some of these levers get pulled and the mechanics work here. Um, so forgive me if I'm slightly wrong. But um, I think first thing first. President Trump is not going away, nor is his base or supporters. And that's really, I think, one of the key things at play right now with we'll talk about the Senate soon. But with the Senate special election coming in July, I mean, in January um, and just this idea that the president may run again or whoever's going to run in four years again, need the president's base. They're holding the Republican Party by hostage almost at this point because of that power. I mean, you have to get the president to, behind what the total votes cast for Biden was a record. The second most ever for any president was President Trump this cycle. So there's clearly energy and support for President Trump and his message. So what he is attempting to do right now is to is to challenge the votes in several states where it's really close. In some of those states, there's going to be a mandatory runout, runoff. But here's some key things about dates to understand of what things have to happen. Um, December 14th is when the Electoral College is supposed to meet in all 50 states and Washington, D.C., um, even though Washington, D.C. doesn't really cast one, but uh, all that they meet and they cast their votes. OK, six days before that, the votes are supposed to be certified, meaning no more legal disputes. So if you think about all these court cases coming through, you're looking at December 6th. These court cases need to be done. De December 14th is when the states are going to basically declare you know, their electoral college. Now, that gets tricky. There's about a handful of states where you could get people that get put on the Electoral College that vote differently than their state. There's about 15 states without a law that prohibits that. Um, interestingly, I believe Pennsylvania and Wisconsin are two of those states. But likewise, so Florida is that way as well. So you could see Democrats changing some votes there. I tend to think we're not going to get into the weeds there. I just thought I'd bring it up. So you target December 15th. Hopefully we have some clarity. If there is a dispute after December 15th, it will go to Congress on January 6th. OK, now here's where things will get really interesting. Um, by my reading of the Constitution and some statutes, like I said last night, if there is a dispute, both the House and the Senate can debate it for an hour. If there is still a dispute, there's a chance those votes get thrown out, the disputed votes. If it comes down to that on January 20th, regardless, if we don't have a president, Speaker Pelosi would be next in line to take the presidency until a president is elected. But guess what, Britt? This is how... Let me just ask, do you have any idea how we would elect a president if it's disputed at that point? Any thoughts, Brad? I have absolutely no idea, and I'm not going to know because I didn't know any of this answers to tell me. What is it? Okay. The U.S. House of Representatives, currently controlled by the majority, um, Democratic majority, would elect the president. And the Senate, which could be controlled by the Republicans or Democrats after the special, would elect the vice president. Oh, my gosh. So if you see what I'm saying, this game that's being played right now, I tend to think, and I, as you heard me say earlier that I'm optimist, I believe that President Trump right now is playing this out to an extent. The Republicans in Congress are enabling to play it out, to placate a base that is ginned up and wants to support the president. And, and I get that. But I do think if you see the way and the path that this goes to conclusion, that there is inevitability here if there isn't some massive voter fraud that is revealed. Yeah. So, you know, that's my two cents at this point. Yeah, well, that, you know, that's absolutely fascinating. And, and you do forget about some of these rules that have been on the books forever. Um, I, you know, I, searching back into my, my archives as a former history major back in my undergrad work, um, I think the last time where we had a, uh, 
a, a kind of a split ticket, if you will, um, well, of, of significance was uh, Aaron Burr and, and Thomas Jefferson. And as we all know, Thomas Jefferson dismissed Aaron Burr and picked his own vice president. So uh, it's just <laughs> certainly, uh, certainly a long, long time ago. So that is uh, that's really interesting. So, you know, you mentioned as you were kind of talking, running through some of these scenarios, obviously the Senate. Um and, and, you know, uh, in, in terms of, you know, what happened on Election Day and, and which party will will have control, you know, there's two real scenarios here. Right. Because we know Georgia's going to go into their into their runoffs uh, with both seats. So uh, so give me the scenarios, Andrew, if the Senate goes 50 50 tie, what does that mean? Uh, and if the Senate Senate stays Republican, uh, how will that impact Biden's policy agenda? Sure, sure. Yeah. So. I think what was really interesting is I think there's an expectation of this blue wave and there are so many more Republicans that were in tight races. But when Senator Tom Tillis, who I got to put a plug in for Senator Tillis, has been awesome on H2B. He is our champion. We were very scared he wasn't coming back. Um, he is coming back. Him and Senator Collins also saw on H2B. Those were two senators that we had almost written off, to be really honest with you. Um, you know, not personally, but we just had looked at the numbers in the race and they weren't looking good. So when they both returned, uh, or one re-election, it looked pretty hard for Democrats to pick up seats. Um, so we're currently sitting at a 48 to 50 Republican majority. Now, remember, there's two people, there's two seats that are technically independent um, that generally caucus with the Democrats, with uh, Bernie Sanders from Vermont, Angus King of Maine. So just throwing that out there, it's 48 50 when you think about how the votes line up. And um, now we have the Georgia runoff. To think that we have two senators from the state. Now, usually that wouldn't happen. The reason you have two senators from the same state up in the same cycle was because of a death. Um, so we have both of these in Georgia, which was the tightest election for control of the Senate. So my projection is I doubt you're going to get many ticket splitters. So if you're at 4850 after that, which will happen on January 5th, I think you're going to be either at 5050 or 4852. If you're at 50-50, um, let's go back to, to looking at the rules again. The, the tie-breaking vote would be the vice president, um, who in all of our projections would be um, uh, vice president or vice president-elect uh, Kamala Harris. And we would really be in some gridlock at that point. Um, I can't recall the last time we were at a 50-50 split. Um, but I do think from an NALP perspective, and, and this might go beyond NALP, there's times that a divided government is helpful. Um, I think a Republican-controlled Senate, if they're willing to cut deals, um, and, and Biden has a track record of cutting deals and reaching across the aisle in the Senate, could be really good for everybody. Um, it, it would block, I think, some very progressive things that could come out of the House that could be harmful for small businesses in the landscape industry, um, but hopefully broker bipartisan consensus on other packages that if it gets through the Senate, then you would surely think it could get through the House. Um, but the cynical side of me says that the shrewd tactician that is Mitch McConnell um, just decides to block everything and cares only about getting judges through, which he can do with a simple majority. So it'll be really curious. I think um, these next couple of weeks are going to be really important to see how the Republicans handle just what the president is doing to see if there really is um, some folks in the Senate that want to cut deals and, and, and kind of move beyond some of this partisan gridlock for on a few instances. But, um, you know, as optimistic as I try to be, I still get skeptical about some of that. But I, I do think divided government isn't a bad thing from an NLP perspective. Yeah, tend to agree. So um, I think that's uh, that's very insightful on your part. So let's, you know, as it, we, we've got the last, um, you know, our, uh, of Congress here to still talk about, which is the House. And 
so the house was was it was a little bit of a surprise just at least in my mind hearing but you know they're still in control but they lost seats um what do you think that means for speaker pelosi uh and uh, the democratic priorities yeah well i wrote this in the advocate on friday but speaker pelosi's job just got a lot harder um first of all i do think she's going to retain the gavel um i i think especially uh, if you do have a divided congress the Repo- i mean the democrats would be um i think very wrong to put somebody in that position that doesn't have the experience she has I do think she she is probably within the last year, I mean, last term or two of her of her speaker of holding the gavel. Um, I do think there's some younger Democrats that want to that want to take that that mantle. But I don't think this will be the the, the in the 117th, I, I believe she'll retain it. Um, but her difficulty is she lost votes. Um, she went she's going to these aren't all called, but the rejections are she's probably going to be down to around 225 or she was up closer to 235. Now, the majority to pass anything is 218. So she went from about 23, 25 majority, which is a comfortable margin to have some of your own members of your party, you know, abstain or vote in the opposite, uh, vote, vote on the opposite line. Um, but when you get down to seven, things get a little tighter. And when you think about the progressive block of the party, um, they wield power. And how is the speaker going to navigate those waters? Part of me thinks that to pass some of the things that she really wants to pass, that would be able to pass the Senate, I mean, she's going to have to anger the progressive side of the party and reach across the aisle to some moderate Republicans. Um, I think that's a good thing for us, and for the whole country. Um, but that's going to make her job tough. And, and to even highlight, I wrote about this last Friday, as recently as yesterday, the head of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, Cherry Bustos, resigned um, immediately after this election, which was, I'm not going to use the word failure, but I would say it was a disappointment from the Democratic Party. And the early names being ballied around to, to head that, there's already a divide between one being a very progressive person saying we didn't run progressive enough. That's why we lost. And another being a more moderate Democrat who is saying when you guys are talking about, um, you know, defund the police and all these other issues, it's killing me in my suburban, you know, kind of purplish district. I tend to think they'll they'll move to the middle. So Democrats are wise. But like I said, um, just like Trump's base, that, that's where the energy is. The energy on the Democratic Party is through some of these progressive ideas. So I don't envy the task of Speaker Pelosi for the next two years. Yeah. You know, Andrew, if I was to just uh, kind of add a follow on question to that, you know, and, and, and maybe I'm interpreting it wrong. So that's why I want to ask you the question. But, um, you know, do you feel like there's going to be an absolute need to 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 have more compromise? out of both the Senate and the House as we move forward, if anything, is to get done in Congress. I do. And and here here's why the way I look at it is there is and you looked when you saw Congress do it this last April when they actually came together on coronavirus relief. OK, they're going to need to do that again. There's another stimulus package and it probably will come out of this Congress, but it won't be the last one. There's going to be something that we missed that is an after effect of, of the coronavirus or some sort of economic metric that took a hit that wasn't totally accounted for. So to really do things, and, and I truly think there are going to be things that are going to happen in this Congress related to you know the environment, but it might not be as radical because there'll be some compromise. Infrastructure is definitely going to be something where there's you know bipartisan support and coronavirus relief and any sort of economic stimulus. That's where I think compromise is going to need to happen. I'm optimistic that of those four things, there's a fifth one called immigration reform, which which kind of gets talked about. And, and the reason I want to leave people in optimism of that, because of the Latino turnout in support 
for Republican candidates in numbers that we were not expecting, I think there could be a desire for Republicans to want to pick this up too. Both parties are fighting for that Latino vote. So to go another two to four years without addressing immigration, I think would be a mistake and misstep by both parties. Yeah, no, makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. So, well, here's to hoping that we get compromise and and there is some activity that really gets done. I tend to agree with you. I think it's going to be the the case. So um, my last question, right? Um, You know, you mentioned it earlier when we were talking about uh, Tom Tillis and and how, you know, the polls kind of look like this was not going to be a year for reelection for him. And, uh, you know, it kind of gets me to the big question is, um, you know, even very wrong on, on Biden and other things like that. What what what's happened with the polls and why were they so wrong again? Yeah, I, you know, it's a really good question because I feel kind of silly because I was looking at those polls religiously uh, for the last several months and especially the last days, refreshing my phone almost hourly. Um, but I think the biggest thing is, first of all, I don't think the polls are trying to skew or or change elections. I do think people tend to gravitate to a poll that's going to give them a more favorable outcome. So there are Republican polls out there. There are Democratic polls. Um, I do think generally the polls might skew a little to the left, but the media generally skews a little to the left. So you can understand that dynamic. But I just want to at least say I don't think there's some, you know, crazy maneuvering with the polls. But that being said, I think the polls still don't understand to capture President Trump's base. Um, I think President Trump's base are generally the type of folks that don't want to talk to a pollster, that don't even want to talk to the media. And if they do, I don't even think they're giving truthful information. So they're missing the Trump mark. The other part was now, and I could feel this energy because of COVID, the Biden campaign made a very conscious decision not to hold rallies. Okay, and and they did they did some, but they just weren't the type of rally that you would generally expect expect in September and October in a presidential cycle as somebody that worked on a campaign. They're big, awesome, energizing events. I think Trump's events, um, now however you thought they should have happened or shouldn't, helped energize his base in the last 30 days. Um, I think the margins in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan would have been wider had President Trump not been doing that. I also think it helped him solidify Florida. So the polls got it wrong. The energy level was harder to predict in COVID-19. But the one thing the pollsters got right, and this is what I'd want to end on, as you've heard me try to be optimistic, the one thing the pollsters got right is that they projected record turnout. And we haven't finalized all of the votes yet, but when they do, we may hit the record, um, the record level of turnout of the, of the population by a percentage um, in the modern era. And for me, that's pretty remarkable and something we should all be proud of. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's a really important point. Um, it, 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 you know, I know while certain folks are probably disappointed that their candidate or candidates did not did not win, um, whether that be in the House, Senate, or for the presidency, um, more and more of America is stepping up to vote, which is is really important for us as a country. So um, anyway, well, listen, Andrew, thank you so much. Uh, you know, I, I certainly hope our listeners got a little bit out of uh, how uh, the election results will impact NALP and and our priorities, Um, but also some insight from you is always appreciated just on the House, the Senate, and the elections as a whole, and even gave us a little bit of a civics lesson. So uh, (laughs) I I certainly appreciate that. So thank you again for your time on this. Uh, Thanks for having me, Britt. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. 